Welcome back to Understanding Climate Finance. My name is Fahim Nurali. I'm the Climate Finance Trade Commissioner based out of the Embassy of Canada in Washington, D.C. Today is actually a really special day because I get the pleasure to welcome my good friend, Hisohei Denise Adaro, to the show. So Denise is a superstar in the ESG and sustainable finance world, largely because she wears many hats. Firstly, she leads the investor relations function globally for the International Finance Corporation, which, as you know, is a private arm of the World Bank Group. She's responsible for strategy, developing new products, and managing relationships with institutional investors, raising $17 billion annually, which funds IFC's loan program. Since IFC issued the first green bonds in 2013, I would say that she's been their chief promoter of these kind of sustainable finance tools for the IFC. In parallel, She's the chairperson of the executive committee of the Green, Social, and Sustainably Linked Bond Principles hosted by the International Capital Markets Association, or ICMA. The principles are the leading framework for sustainable bond products, and she has been a central figure in the development of the sustainable bond market since 2013. As I mentioned, Denise has been recognized for her significant work in sustainable finance and ESG considerations within the debt markets. She was named Personality of the Year in 2020 by Environmental Finance Magazine. In 2020, the National Institute of Investor Relations honored her as one of its 40 under 40 accomplished professionals. So I can go on and on about Denise, but then we'd run out of time in the show. So welcome, Denise, to the program. I'm thrilled to be here. And I think it's quite amazing to hear an old friend of mine reel off my uh, acad- no, reel off my professional achievements. But I'm very pleased to be here. But I think, well, let's start with the IFC for your, the, the first hat. Can you explain the function of the Treasury Department of the IFC? So let me take a step back and just remind everyone who IFC is. So IFC, as obviously the private sector of the World Bank Group, Our key role is twofold. It's providing equity and loan investments to private sector enterprises in emerging markets. And so the role of the Treasury essentially is raising the financing to fund those loans and equity investments. And oftentimes people tend to think that because, you know, it's the World Bank Group owned by 185 countries, that we are funded by those governments, which is in part true. And of course, Canada being one of the largest owners of the World Bank Group. However, the when you look at what the capital is that the countries have actually paid in, it really dwarfed by how much we have to raise each year to fund these investments. And so that's where the $17 billion comes in, because what that does is it funds the loans, as I said, and the equity investments. So that is, in fact, the role of the Treasury, is one, raising the capital and also assisting with hedging and all the financial um, backdrop things and operations that need to exist for us to do our core business in order to meet our mandate of eradicating poverty and boosting shared prosperity. That's interesting. So I think when you're looking at the raising capital component of, of the work, obviously you're partnering with a number of financial institutions and you're promoting a number of new products for them to leverage and to use, I guess, for on lending. Can you tell me a little bit about how you interact with these financial institutions? What's their approach working with an impact 
sort of driven organization like IFC? So it, it's really, truly an interesting role. And I'm not just saying this because I do. it. <laughs> but uh, when I joined IFC about 11 years ago, it was setting up the investor relations division. And at the time, the majority, so the way that we borrow money is through the bond market, so which is essentially going out and getting money similar to a loan, but in, a, in larger amounts. And the majority of our investors at the time were central banks. And that really is because we are so highly rated as an institution. And as most people probably listening know, there aren't even now very many AAA rated institutions in the world. However, we have always been AAA rated. And regulations have made it so that financial institutions now need to own or hold more high quality um liquid assets, as they called, which include bonds by AAA institutions such as ourselves. And so what I've worked on over the last decade is diversifying that investor base beyond central banks so that you now have the likes of commercial bank treasuries, you know, you name them, all the, you know, the TDs, Bank Bank Montreal, etc. We have now the full slew of bank treasuries that buy our credit and in addition to that, asset managers, pension funds, etc. So now what, when you bring the ESG angle into it, over that time as well, the market has shifted to actually meet us where we have always been. Because as an institution, that has been the core of our work is sustainable development. And we do not make any investments that do not meet what is essentially the world's most robust environmental and social standards. As an institution, that's a criteria of our investments. And what you're now seeing, the momentum over the last, you know, five, seven years, in particular, after the Paris Agreement, is the role of green financing and various, in fact, acronyms encompass the idea of sustainability in finance. And so working with the same institutions, again, central banks, regulators, commercial bank treasuries, asset managers, insurance companies. I mean, take, the, for example, insurance companies. The, seeing that they obviously, on the one hand, need to invest the premiums they're getting, mitigating against claims, it only makes sense to invest in green finance when you know that climate risk, I mean, if you read the Black Bank of Canada's report, it is listed even, you know, every central bank essentially lists climate risk in 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 the um, in whatever DNA report it is they have on an annual basis these days. It's not even a, a matter of dispute anymore. And so in, investing in green finance, investing in green bonds, if you have to hold even, as I said, high-quality liquid assets, it makes sense to do so in green bonds because you're essentially hedging against the risk. So did that answer your question? No, no, that, that makes sense. And in fact, I, ha I sort of have a follow-up question. So you've looked at these banks over the last 10 years and promoted ESG in, in, in proper governance and proper environmental standards. At what point do you feel that it went from being a checkbox that they had to to just mm. check off versus actually being part of their DNA and their strategy. Oh, this is great. I love this. So we deal with, in, in my role, we deal with about, uh, well, we have about 60 books, so, so, sorry, 60 banks on our roster that we deal with. 
And when I say deal with, we have them help us in arranging our bonds, right? And so they get fees from that. And this is how, of course, investment banks make money. So they help us structure the transaction and then sell it to asset managers, pension funds, etc. So they're the intermediary. Mm-hmm. And two years ago, we... Well, actually, I would say over the last eight years, we choose who we work with based on their expertise, their reach, and their ESG credentials. But that had always been somewhat subjective. That portion of the discussion was, you know, how good are they, you know, et cetera, on various ESG um, variables. But two years ago, we decided to take things differently. And this is the birth of IFC's ESG, we call it ESG dealer survey, because we refer to them as our dealers. And so in in putting this ESG dealer survey together, the idea of it was to standardize how we assess these financial institutions and on the basis of their performance, select them for fee-paying mandates. So we've done this now, the second iteration completed this summer, and it basically ranks the banks, and and we've gotten around 45 banks participating in this. So it's really interesting to see the not only the growth, to answer your question more directly, the growth before, which was basically having conversations about, oh, yes, ESG, we're speaking to investors who want to do ESG, without them really talking about what they were doing themselves in-house. Well, the conversation has shifted beyond that. So it's not, can you actually structure this transaction? Or do you have, you know, insights into investors' minds as to how they're thinking about this? No, it's more, what are you doing on ESG? What are you doing on your lending book? What are you doing, you know, around your, uh, on the S side of things? What are you doing with your even your suppliers, what are you, who is your your focus in terms of, you know, are you expanding in terms of diversity, you know, governance, of course, all of that. And the end goal, the measure of success for us is actually seeing that the capital market teams in these, um, in these banks are now having to discuss things that they were never doing before. So you've gone beyond just talking about oh, the pricing will be X, Y, Z, to actually having to answer things like, oh, yeah, we put out our net zero plan and the you know the science-based target and timeline is X, Y, Z. I mean, hello, this to me is incredible to have investment bankers interested and talking about, again, E, S, and G. So we've got this carrot and the carrot is the fee paying, which makes them participate. And then we have these engagement meetings with them thereafter. So I'm beginning to see definitely there is certainly more of the check the box. And, and, I, and I'll end with one thing. So one of the questions on this survey is around how you're structured internally. You know, is ESG, and this may not surprise you, with some of the banks, ESG lived under their marketing division. Right, or CSR. Up until maybe the last few months, some of them, you know, and what we wanted to see is ESG, you know, being something that is taken as part and parcel of business decisions and, you know, reporting to C-suite. And I will say that there has been progress, again, based on the engagement and the feedback that we've seen. And, and so there is progress there. So, yes, by and large, 
initially, I will admit there were some that were just, you know, checking the box and it's a marketing thing. But we are seeing very different because the peer pressure as well, the stakeholder pressure and peer pressure is making them move. Well, hopefully in, in the future, then we'll see them, you know, as you said, this is part of their strategy and reporting to the C-suite. And so IFC doesn't have to play a role in their own interactions. ESG becomes a key part of it. That's right. And and the funny thing is, since we put this out, the survey, the press have been very receptive of it, the financial community in general. And we've seen a number of other institutions and some of the biggest investors in the world reach out to us and say, we'd like to replicate this. Mm -hmm. So I think reporting and disclosure is going to be massive. And I think you've talked about TCFD on your show before. But now the transparency that is required is at such a level that you can't hide anymore. You've got to show your hand. And so I think that's it's interesting to see how this is going to play out, and particularly in, in economies like Canada, where, of course, resource-rich, et cetera. Yeah, it, it would be great to see. So then that brings me to sort of your second role. So can you tell me a little bit more about your role as a chairperson of the executive committee of the Green, Social, and Sustainably Linked Bonds and about ICMA? Absolutely. So the, I guess, fun fact first is that um, IFC was the first issuer in the world to bring what is a public green bond to market. And this was in 2012. Why does this even matter? So before then, green bonds existed and they were in the format we refer to as private placement, which is basically where one institution basically has some cash to put to work, and they ask you to structure something for that. So the difference with going to a public market means that you're taking it from what is essentially niche to mainstream and saying, well, everyone in the world, here's my announcement, if you're ready to come in alongside, Mm. you know, other investors into this transaction. So that bond, which was in in February of that year, has now been almost the landmark of the growth of the market here. And I want to say, just for context as well for your listeners, that the reason why it's so interesting, we keep talking about the bond market vis-a-vis the the equity market and, you know, the loan market as what have you. The size of the bond market is just tremendously larger than any other capital market in the world. And so when you're talking about net zero ambitions, you know, or halving GHG emissions by 2030, it is impossible to achieve any of that without embracing the the bond market. And we clearly need the financing. So so post the issuance of the public green bond in 2012, a framework was created the year after, basically to lay the groundwork as to how other issuers could begin issuing green bonds. And actually, I remember that year going out to Canada to various provinces to talk to potential issuers who were interested, and some of them have become frequent green bond issuers now. So there was a lot of capacity building that we did rather informally with, I would say, institutions that are peers to IFC. And so the green bond principles is a voluntary framework, and it literally is a roadmap as to how to issue a green bond, and that's for issuers. So any institution, be you financial institution, apparel company, you name it. So long as you have green projects to finance, well, then you can potentially issue a green bond to finance those projects. 
And the so it cuts across industries. The Green Bond Principles now has been in existence since 2014. And the number of institutions that have signed up to it, over 500. So the governance of the principles, essentially the body that drafts the principles, updates it, uh, and essentially manages the process, is the executive committee, mm-hmm. which has 24 institutions. And that is the committee that I chair. And we, so having been a member on it since 2014, I was elected to chair it two years ago. So I'm on my second year of chairing it. But it's amazing just to see the growth because when you look at the growth of the green bond market in 2012, the entire market was around $11 billion. 25% of that was IFC's issuance. And now it's just incredible to see the growth and the volume that we've hit over a trillion dollars. Oh, wow. Right. There's so many. The success of it is the diversity of issuers that you see. And that, again, it's becoming mainstream. You know, and if you are not in that market now, then there's it's like, there's what is wrong with you? <laughs> Why are you not considering it, so to speak? Yeah. So that's what the Green Bond Principles is. It's a voluntary framework. It's global, and it's for issuance of green bonds. There's also the suite of, of principles include the social bond principles, which came after. And more recently, the third layer was sustainability bond principles, which is basically when you're issuing a bond for both green and social needs. Mm-hmm. And most recently, last year, uh, we put out the sustainability linked bond principles. And I'll just say what, quickly what the difference is. So with green bonds, you have to have projects. And the money you raise from the bond exclusively needs to finance green projects. With sustainability linked, it is different because you don't have to have projects. It's essentially going out to market with a promise to achieve a sustainability target. So as an example, you may say, I intend to reduce my GHG emissions by a certain percentage by a certain date. And so should you not meet that target, the interest you pay on your bond will be jacked up by a predetermined amount. So it's more performance-based, and then the other is use of proceeds. Yeah, well, I mean, that's certainly a strong incentive to make sure you hit your goal. Indeed. So when, let's say there are institutions in Canada that um, you haven't worked with, what's the best way for them to approach you to see how they, they can partner with you? So it's great to see the momentum in in Canada and the number of Canadian businesses and corporates in particular that have already put out their net zero ambitions. And I think that there is more to come, in particular in the area of transition as an economy that is obviously dependent on natural resources. It is it is quite rich in opportunity around that area of transition. And so I, I think, in, well, for one, for those treasurers out there or businesses that are thinking, well, how do we begin to adapt to this low-carbon economy? Then the financing products that are out there to help you achieve those goals, and I'm a firm believer in money to go towards R&D for some of the solutions that we have today that are not commercially viable just because of, uh, you know, the greenium, as it's called, that the price increase to move from, say, gray cement to green cement, as an example. And so the first thing is to 
Canadian businesses, or if you're Canadian investors, then I would say is to visit IFC's website and, and the Investor Relations website and to look at our funding program as a means of incorporating ESG into your own portfolios. For the issuers there, I'd mentioned that we do have... Um, we have offered informal technical assistance, which we remain open to doing, obviously, with Canada being one of the, the largest shareholders of the bank. We have a very good partnership and keen to support Canadian businesses. The last part I would say is that Canadian businesses that are doing work and business in emerging markets, I mean, that would be the sweet spot for IFC. So I'm sure they can find me or hope they can find me. <laughs> well, certainly they can reach out to me and I can connect them to you. You know, not too long ago, we had Shari Friedman That's right. um, on our show. And we were excited that you're now hosting the Climate Biz podcast. Mm -hmm. So I think as we're closing out this podcast, I wanted to see if you wanted to give a quick plug to what we can look forward to in this new season of Climate Biz. This is terrific. Yes. So Climate Biz is IFC's longest running podcast. And we call it it's the podcast where sustainability meets smart business. And really, it goes beyond climate into wider sustainability. And as we've kicked off season four, the theme of this season is the path to net zero. And it's looking out there into solutions and within the private sector, which of course is is where innovations tend to occur mostly. And what is out there and what do we actually need and what it will take for those solutions to become viable um, for us to meet those goals. So we've got quite a lineup of very interesting speakers. We've just completed interviews with Paul Dickinson, who founded the CDP, the Carbon Disclosure Project, uh, Mark Campanelli, who leads the Carbon Tracker mm. And we've got uh, quite a, a range from asset managers to, you know, policymakers to CEOs of corporations and what have you. So, yeah, one to watch. And with COP26 coming on, yeah, yeah it's going it's to be. especially relevant. Absolutely. Absolutely. Good. Well, I think that's our time today. Thank you, Denise, so much for joining the podcast. I encourage all of our listeners, obviously, to listen to all of our podcasts, but also to the Climate Biz podcast, because it really goes more into depth and Denise just outlined some of the exciting guests that they have this season. So while you're looking at that, listen to our podcast, please rate our podcast as well. And let me know if you have any feedback. And I look forward to our next episode soon. Thank you. Thank you for having me.